wonderful. So the last few weeks, we have um, heard a whole load of different stories about what it means to be light in a dark world, um, whether it's um, being an eight-cow wife. Some of you remember that. Uh, whether it's in a how we wrestle with this problem of, of stress as Christians. We've had story after story. Uh, and today I'm going to go through uh, one of the stories of Paul. And Paul has a lot of stories. He fit a lot into a short life. Um, and it's the story of, of him and uh, the city of Athens. And, and I love this story in Acts. And we're going to go through Acts 17 in a bit. But I know, I don't know how you find it, but when, when I'm going through maybe the Gospels or Acts or even uh, many of the epistles, a lot of them are addressed to Jews. And uh, does anyone here know, like, um, not just Jews, but people who are uh, actively, like, Orthodox Jews? Anyone here friends with Orthodox Jews at all? Yeah, I think that, pr- oh, we've got one person. Okay, um, that kind of proves my point. Uh, I know a few Jews, but they, they're not necessarily, as the, the Old Testament um, talks about, they're not less necessarily longing for the Messiah. And so sometimes we read much of, much of Scripture, um, which is written by God, but because it's written to Jews, we have to say, okay, well, what does that mean now in my context? Because when uh, I'm telling the gospel to myself or sharing Jesus with someone, they're not necessarily looking at Isaiah and being like, well, where is this Messiah? Uh, in fact, they've got no idea what, I, what the book of Isaiah is. And so I think it's particularly um, helpful seeing these examples of how Paul, who was a Jew, who was a Pharisee, who spent his whole life surrounded by Jews, there is this moment when his missionary journeys start going to these cities that are predominantly non-Jewish and, and proclaiming it to what was called the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And I love this story because it, it starts to, it, it, not just the, the gospel, the gospel is the same for whatever you are, if you're a Jew, if you're a Gentile, whatever, but the methods he used, I'm like, wow, that sounds like, sounds like my work friends, it sounds like my colleagues. And so this story is so helpful, and we're going to be going through that today. So I'm just going to pray for us, and then we're going to kick it off. Lord God, thank you so much for your good news. We thank you that when we look at the Bible, the same gospel that gave Paul life gives us life. The same eternal joy that he hoped in, we hope in today. And just as you equipped, encouraged, and sent him, you equip, encourage, and send us. So God, we ask, we need you. You are wonderful. You are glorious. But sharing you is tough. And we need your Holy Spirit. We need you to miraculously work in us. We need the boldness of the Holy Spirit. And I pray, God, would you, would you just give us such a joy for sharing the best news and to share our best friend, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So uh, we're going to begin in Acts 17. Um, and it kicks off in verse 16. It's going to come up on the screen behind me. Um, but it goes like this. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. I'm going to pause there, uh, and we see that uh, Paul um, was essentially on his second missionary journey. He had, and try and imagine a map of the Mediterranean uh, in your head for a moment. Uh, He began around about Israel and traveled all the way across Turkey, by foot, right, long time, all across Turkey, all the way up past um, what's now Philippi, Thessalonica, and then all the way into Greece. And he's head down towards Athens, the first time he's ever been there, and after that he then goes on to um, Corinth, uh, and, and so this is where he, he starts encountering all of these different cities. Um, and what we see is that he was provoked, the Bible says. That he has this moment um, and this stirring where he was provoked when he saw that the city was full of idols. 
And to give a little bit of a background of what Athens was like, uh, the Greeks at the time had around about 3,000 gods. So if you encounter all the major ones, all the minor ones, and what they'd do is they'd take a need or something significant in their life and they'd create a god for it. And, and they obviously had lots of needs, right? 3,000 gods, there's lots of them. And they have amongst all of their gods, um, they had some for uh, cheese making, uh, so, and some for partying, um, some for f- fertility. There were gods for everything that was remotely important to them. Um, and so what we see is that Paul walks into this, seas, uh, this city, and what he would have seen is all of these little idols for each of these different gods. All of these, maybe they were stone, maybe they were made of gold or silver, and these little idols that are set up to these gods. And if you go to Athens today, you'll see part of um, uh, these massive temples, and they have these huge temples to Zeus or to these, uh, these other um, gods. And so it was wildly apparent what this city was like. But on top of that, it was also a city of, um, of immense wealth, of immense intellect. Uh, you had some of the best minds in the world were in Athens. So this was a city that was, frankly, amazing. But the emotion we see Paul coming with is one of being provoked. Um, And I'm I'm assuming all of you have seen um, shows like uh, Children in Need. Um, And and what Children in Need is, is essentially it's a a marathon of um, performances and sketches and things like that. But interleaved with these um, testimonies and videos explaining some of the plight of children in other parts of the world. And I think they do a really good job of, of demonstrating a need that often we'd be quite ignorant of. And usually they'll take you know, a Western celebrity and they'll be interviewing and getting to know and building friendships with these people in dire poverty. And the, the aim of it is, is that they want to provoke people. And, and it works because they're able to provoke people to give money. Um, and there is a provoking because we see this juxtaposition, we see this comparison between the absolute relative riches of the West and the absolute poverty of those who in much of this world don't have clean um, drinking water, don't have sanitation, things like that. Um, And there is this provoking that goes on, particularly from Western people, because we're aware of the absolute difference. If you showed, say, something like children in need to another area of the world that was also in poverty, there wouldn't really be the same provoking. Not because it's not sad, but just because they're like, well, this is what life is like. This is our experience of poverty. That's also poverty. That's just how life is. But we see this provoking when there is an extreme juxtaposition. And I think it becomes more obvious as we get through some more of this this scripture. Paul was provoked for these reasons. Because he knew the riches of Christ and he saw their spiritual poverty. He knew the riches of Christ but saw their extreme poverty. Remember, this is a city that is, say, similar to New York, full of celebrities, full of riches, full of academia, full of people at the top of their game, and yet Paul was provoked. And I think it can be so easy for us in this world to see, particularly in London, confident, established, successful people and think, man, if only I could go to the poor and the needy. But what Paul did was he saw through, saw through the worldly Um, riches, saw through the worldly wealth, saw through the worldly confidence and saw a poverty. And I'll unpack more of it later on. But what what are your feelings? What are your feelings when you are around your friends, around your neighbours, around those who don't know Jesus? Because if Jesus is who he he says he is, if these songs that we sang today, they're real, if they're true, there needs to be a provoking that goes on in our hearts. And the reason I'm really labouring this point 
is because all of the stuff we talk about with mission and sharing Jesus, if we don't get how amazing Jesus is, how utterly he changes our life, and how much our friends and our neighbours need him, this is kind of a waste of time. You know, it's not really worth it. And yet when we're mesmerised with the riches of Jesus, the comparative poverty, spiritual poverty of those around us will become apparent and it will provoke us. Um, and it's the reason that Paul couldn't just go, oh, this is a great city. Everyone uh, is clearly doing so well here. He was provoked. He says in Philippians 3, 8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Um, and then let's move on to the next verse. It says in verse 17, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and, and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, these are some of the epic thinkers of that time, um, also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. So this was this massive amphitheater. So it could pack out a ton of people in there. Uh, quite an intimidating place. Saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Which sounds a lot like Twitter to me. Um, and, and, and what we see Paul do is he goes to, he basically looks at every opportunity he can. He goes to synagogue, marketplace, Areopagus, and we don't really hear much about the other places. So what we assume is that he just tried a ton of different places, and wherever he had an open door, he just stepped into it. Including this Areopagus, this massive amphitheater he'd never been to before. He just said, all right, well, this is an open door, I'll take it. And suddenly he's presented with all of these philosophers who, who will spend all their time basically arguing about philosophy. And some of this is pretty complicated, pretty deep um, philosophy, and yet he steps into it confidently. Um, and what we see is that Paul reasons. We actually, in this story, we don't really see any of the signs that we see in a lot of other stories. Miracles, someone gets raised from the dead, um, people get healed, uh, demons getting cast out. We don't see any of that. And it's not that that isn't true or powerful or part of the everyday Christian life. But he reasons. And um, maybe some of you have had conversations with people who aren't Christians and have heard something along the lines of, man, I, I just wish I had your faith. And it's kind of shrouded as a compliment. But it's actually basically saying, what you believe is crazy. I could not believe that, right? And, 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 and I think sometimes as Christians, we go along with that. And, and, and I know there's times when I'm not really thinking straight and I, I just assume or when I'm talking to people I just have faith I just have this feeling inside it just feels right it just connects with me personally but the, the Bible doesn't say that the Bible gives time and time again a compelling story um, that is worth believing a compelling truth that is under uh, that is underlying it has the truth of the resurrection and this isn't just a here's a nice belief, belief system believe in it there is actual reasoning. There is actual um, truth beneath it. Um, and I think this is really challenging. I think particularly for us as charismatics, one of the temptations can be is that we can um, rely only 
on God working miraculous. God, would you give me a miraculous situation? And I, I pray regularly, God, would they have a dream? <laughs> so I don't really have to go the whole way, oh, great, I can just fill you in on who Jesus is because you've already seen him in a dream, right? But, but the reality is we don't always see that. Sometimes it happens. We should still pray for that. That is still part of what it means to be a believer, seeing God do the miraculous. But also we, we need to reason. We need to understand the truth of the gospel. Do, do we understand why we're Christians? I think, um, to be honest, everyone should go on Alpha, whether you're a Christian or not, like regularly. Because I'm, uh, every time I'm hit with, with Alpha, uh, I'm reminded, wh- why, why do I believe this again? And uh, just going through scripture and, and history and seeing the evidence for Jesus being king and God is overwhelming. Wow, I believe something that's actually real. I don't just have to trust that something mysterious is true. We know it's true. And then we experience this truth. This is the walk of believers. And I I just want to encourage you guys that we don't have to... I remember chatting with Mormons one time, and it's tough with Mormons because the the foundation that they believe on is pretty shaky. I'm not going to go into it now, but it includes like native Indians being Israelites and all of these cities that apparently exist in North America that actually aren't there. There's no archaeology. So so what they basically got to say, and they said this to me, was... You just have to believe or, or tr- trust that God's there somewhere. I'm like, well, I believe in Jesus and the resurrection, and there's all this evidence for that. So I, I'm sorry, guys. Like, you're going to have to try harder than that. Um, and, and, and there is, the more you look into this, the more you see, wow, there is so much truth here. And some of you may have read um, The Case for Christ, which is written by a guy called Lee Strobel, who, um, as I know, it was a, um, a lawyer who, as a non-Christian, set out to disprove Christianity as a lawyer, and so he set up the evidence, he set up the uh, arguments for and against, and then saw, oh man, there's a lot of evidence here, and he became a Christian, and so he wrote this whole book explaining his story and his testimony of facing the evidence of this, and being like, this is actually true, this is amazing, and I find that so encouraging, you know, when we go to our friends who, you know, some of them have degrees, some of them are wildly more intelligent than us, we're not trying to convince them of something that that they will struggle to find evidence for. The evidence is all there. The evidence is all there. So I'm going to continue. Oh, one of the final thing before I mention, um, I think uh, one of the things I was stirred by is Proverbs 1.20 says, wisdom shouts aloud in the street. If this is true, it's worth shouting about. And we don't have to literally shout it. But if it's true, it's worth people knowing about. And I think if we see evidence for this, people need to know about it. I think that's wonderful. Anyway, I'll move on. Verse 22 goes like this. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So what he's doing is he's um, been going along, seeing all of these idols. And one of the things he mentions that he saw was an idol to the unknown God. And what the Greeks had done is, amongst all of their gods they'd set up, they basically set up all these, uh, all these gods, hoping that they were praying to the right one. And they didn't have a huge amount of hard evidence to go on. So they're essentially saying, well, we'll have a god for cheese making and this and that and these other important things. And just in case, because we're not 100% sure, let's also set up an idol to the unknown god. It's kind of a miscellaneous catch everything else god, right? And, and, and what Paul's done is, I think particularly um, 
clever because what he's done is he, he's essentially said, you guys aren't sure. You don't have tons of evidence. You don't have something that you completely 100% trust in, and this idol is an example of it. it it's kind of like there's non-Christians we know who say, I do everything by evidence and science, but I'm not really sure when I'm going when I'm dying, and, and I'm not really going to look into it, so I'll just hope that everything's going to be okay. Or, or maybe I'll just trust in karma. Or so, I, I, It feels good. But you make all of your other decisions based on science and hard evidence. You spent hours looking at the insurance you're going to get for your house, and yet you haven't really looked into where you're going when you die. What Paul's doing is saying, this is silly. This is ridiculous. You have gods for all of these things, and yet you're not really 100% sure. And he says, this God that you're not sure about, I proclaim to you. And later on, he'll talk about the resurrection and, and all of these things. Um, and the, 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 I find it wonderfully applicable to our situation because we're in uh, what people will call the knowledge revolution or the science revolution. And um, we are surrounded by a culture that looks for evidence um, in everything. Um, and I, I find uh, every now and again someone will say when I'm in conversation about this, but hasn't evolution disproved everything? Um, which is really interesting because um, e- evolution says something about, uh, and lots of it are theory, some of it's proven, um, says something about how animals get it, how bits of creation have been developed. You know, you can look at um, birds that have changed the way that they um, develop and the way they have wings and stuff like that because of um, little bits of evolution. But that doesn't say anything about whether Jesus was raised from the dead or not. That's where our trust is in. Our trust isn't in, well, exactly how did God make the world? Because Genesis, it doesn't really say much about it. Genesis focuses loads on why. Genesis focuses loads on his people, his creation that he lovingly created. It doesn't really say much about, and here are the micro details on how God did it. And often, I think, scientists uh, know, and we as a culture know lots about the how so how has this world been slowly formed over time? How has this happened? How has this happened? And there's lots of debates between Christians and scientists about how certain things came into about. But scientists, at the end of the day, they can't tell you why. They can't tell you why you exist. They can't tell you what your purpose is. They can't tell you what your meaning is. And, and I think often people are asking the wrong questions. And we're in this fascinating thing with our culture where people don't believe in God's but they're really desperately searching for an answer. And there's this quote that has just stuck with me for a long time. Uh, um, a guy who's not a Christian, uh, but an author called Julian Barnes said, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. And I think this, this is probably the story of many of our friends. You know, They don't believe in God, but they know there has to be something more. There has to be something more. And, uh, and people won't necessarily express it as, please take me on an alpha course, but they will express it in their life, in the way they live it. Sometimes despair, sometimes guilt, sometimes shame, sometimes fear. I don't know where I'm going. And if we're really going to befriend the world, if we're really going to be light in a dark generation, do we know our people? Do we know our friends well enough to know when they're asking these questions, when they're crying out? Julian Barnes is a philosopher, so he writes about this stuff. So this is, the, this is the kind of thing he talks about all the time. Do we have those kind of soul-level conversations with our friends? British people are excellent at small talk, are excellent at just talking about rubbish. Uh, I know in my world that's always the case. Oh, my word, the number of times we've chatted about stuff that just is, is, is inconsequential. No one really cares about. 
Uh, but how I just long to have conversations about, so what are your hopes and dreams? What are you afraid of? And this is an odd conversation to have first thing in a Monday morning. I will give you that. But it means that our friendships have to be uh, deeper than skin deep, right? It means that as, as if people are made to seek God, um, then we need to know them well enough. Whether we are versed in philosophy or not, our world around us is desperate for answers that only the gospel holds. We have the privilege of explaining to this world, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The question is um, not, do my unbelieving friends desire the gospel? But where do my unbelieving friends desire the gospel? We're going to move on. Um, I'll address this again in just a moment. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. What he's doing is gently, lovingly, um, kind of undermining what they believe in. Uh, he's saying, Greeks, if you believe that these gods that you have um, created, you've made these idols out of gold or silver or stone, and you bow down and you worship them, and yet you believe they created the world, why would they need to be made by you? Why would they need to have these little houses, these temples that you build for them? Are they not creators? Are they not <laughs> supposed to be epic and huge? And he's gently undermining that, that what you believe in, there is not evidence for, there is not a solid ground that you are standing on here. It continues, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. He's talking about creation here. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. So what he's talking about here is the God who created you wants to know you. You don't have to make idols to him. You don't have to make these little houses for him. He wants to know you. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Now, what this is, I have to look this up. Um, what Paul is quoting their own poems, their own non-Christian pagan poems back to them. And he's essentially saying, look, you've written, in him we live and move and have our being. And he's not saying, all oh, your pagan gods are true. What he's saying is, you are designed by God to have this desire to know him. You see what he's doing here? He's, he's setting up the situation and saying, look, you already want this Jesus. And he hasn't yet revealed it's Jesus, but what he's doing is setting up the... You weren't made to know these distant gods who are made of metal and wood and stuff like that that you can't know personally. You were made to know a God who's personal. And he continues, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He's saying... You, you need to look outside of what you're making and what you're creating to, to put all of your trust in. It hasn't really changed. 2,000 years later, mankind is still putting its trust in things it's made and created. I will make myself a god, and I will bow down before it, and I will trust in it, and it will give me hope. It will be my job. It will be my marriage. It will be my kids, all of which are human, human-made or human beings, and we're trusting in things that are not God to be God. And no wonder they disappoint. No wonder um, the things in this world don't satisfy us. And one of the things we heard from the, um, uh, the breakfast on Saturday um, was we had a few people who are at the top of their game. 
who were in London in great jobs doing brilliantly. And as Christians, I remember one of them said, you get there and it's just not what you'd hoped it would be. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't give you the affirmation and the hope that we were made to know. And I find that so encouraging every time I hear that. And I forget that, right? Because you get into the game, you get into the zone, you want this, you want that. You know, often good things, but we begin to put all of our trust and our hope in them. And what Paul's doing here is gently dismantling their hope in earthly things and saying, this isn't going to satisfy you. So then he's begin to reveal who Jesus is. And they wanted hard evidence, and Paul later on gives the resurrection. Um, and we have to ask, um, what questions, what desires do our culture have? What things are they looking for? Because every culture is different. That's why um, Paul said, I'm a, uh, a Jew to the Jews and a Gentile to the Gentiles. Uh, sorry, a Greek to the Greeks. And, and what he did was he explained the same gospel, the same truth of who Jesus was in different ways, depending on who it is. And if, if we stood up maybe in your office, I don't know why you do this. If you stood up in your office and like Stephen, proclaimed the gospel in terms of the Old Testament and lineage, your friends would just be, I have no idea what you're talking about, you crazy person, right? Because, because people understand, are coming from different directions to understand the gospel. But if I stood up in, say, a different part of the world, say South America, and I explained the gospel, I'd explain it in a different way to what you would do to Western, logical-minded people. Not that South Americans aren't logical. Sorry, Sonia, that's not what I meant. Um, but they think about things. Our, their culture processes things in different ways. And what we have to ask is, what are the desires that our culture has? So for some of us, it may be intimacy, right? We live in a Tinder generation, okay, a growing Tinder generation. And it's this bizarre phenomenon that's taken over our culture where people want intimacy without commitment with a whole bunch of strangers really, really quickly. And there, and there is just this desire to be known, this desire to be loved. Um, and it's obvious, people are crying out for it. I remember I had a, a friend in Manchester called Paul, and Paul was looking for intimacy in all the wrong places. And uh, I remember the opportunity to explain what intimacy with God meant, that God loves you, that God has known everything about you, and yet he still loves you, and he wants to be your friend. He wants to be your father for all of eternity. There is, a, there is an answer to the intimacy yearning. And this is difficult to explain because a lot of people, God is this distant, far-off person you can't know. For 16 years of my life, that's what God was. And when, when someone explained to me, Jesus is someone you can know as a friend, I was like, this is outrageous. People have to, people have to hear about this. This is amazing. And just, just one other example. Uh, I was in a... Like a, like a midweek community, a, a, church, a church I was part of in Manchester. And uh, there was a guy who was quite a new Christian who, who didn't really have an experience of church, who'd come and visited. And for some reason, that evening, we were talking about glory. The Bible talks about the glory of God all the time. Uh, and this guy said, well, I have, the only time I've ever heard this word is in glory, glory, man united. Right? Isn't, that, isn't that fascinating? I was like, this is, that is fascinating. And because glory, you often assume it's a word that our culture doesn't really know, but it does. It's yelling it in these massive stadiums week after week. And, and our culture has a desire for glory. It's why some of these supporters, some of you may well be here, they, they, so much of their life revolves around this team that they love. They, their bodies are completely tattooed up by it. Why? Because they love and they desire this glory. And, and they're enthralled with it. 
And what was wonderful was getting to explain to this guy, hey, like, look at the glory of God. This is a God who's exalted and ruling and reigning. And everything in you that desires to know something glorious will be satisfied in Jesus. Because any team, as wonderful as they are, they won't quite satisfy this desire that each of us have for glory. And so that's two examples, right? But there are tons. There are loads. And there isn't like a cookie-cutter kind of formula of here's how you share the gospel, here's a list of questions you ask. You have to know people. You have to get to know them. You have to ask questions. You have to figure out what is underneath everything. What makes you tick? Because my God loves you, and you were made to know and love Jesus. So we're moving on to verse 30. It says this, the times of ignorance. This is Paul continuing to talk about God. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. Now, this is the, for me, this is the really scary bit. Up until then, it was kind of philosophy and running around and then boom, Paul, Paul goes straight in there with sin. And essentially says, you are separated from God. This God whom you were made to know, you were separated by. And explaining sin was difficult then, it's difficult now. <laughs> right? It's always one of these really difficult things to explain. And yet, when I, when I remember meeting Jesus, it didn't all click together until sin came into place. Because I was like, well, if God loves me and wants to know me, then why don't I just know him? Why wasn't I just born knowing him? And my friend lovingly, graciously explained what sin was. Sin is something that you were born into and you commit willfully that separates you from God. And it's terrible. And thank God that Jesus came. Thank God that, that God filled with love and mercy that we did not deserve, sent his one and only son to be tortured and pinned to a cross so that we could know him. And unless we explain sin, people won't understand why Jesus had to die. Because I, I, as a choir boy, some, you've all seen it. As a choir boy, I'd sing over and over again, that, you know, this stuff about Jesus' love and mercy. I just didn't understand it until someone explained what sin was. And it is tough. I, like, this is never an easy conversation to have. You were evil from birth. That's not an easy thing to share with those we love and we care about. You know, th this is not easy, but it does make sense. It does make sense of, oh, this is why, even though I do all the right things, I'm still not satisfied. I'm still not happy. There's still there's something of shame and guilt within me. I don't know what it is because I feel like I'm doing all the right things. I'm telling myself I'm a wonderful person. But without understanding sin, we don't understand what, why we need Jesus and why it gives us life. Because he took our sin for us and in its place gave us eternal life. It is wonderful. And I would say typically this is something that kind of only makes sense when you understand the idea of a cosmic being, right? Because we are moving to a culture where we're quite um, self-righteous. And the idea of someone saying, you are wrong, is not popular, right? No one likes authority. No one likes judges. No one likes being told that they've done something wrong. Um, and yet, our lives don't make sense until we understand the curse, until we understand the separation from God. But God, it, being rich in mercy, sent Jesus. And, and, and it makes sense of all of this. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this beautifully. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is wonderful. This is wonderful. 
And in these difficult conversations, this is beautiful. This will make sense of who Jesus is. And then finally, we move on to verse 34. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dinosius, <laughs> the Areopagite, and a woman named Damarius, and others with them. Some. It's that one word, some. Uh, it can be well, one of the most frustrating things of, of being a Christian is loving Jesus and knowing what he does, and yet day after day being with people who it's so difficult to share this gospel with. Or I'm just like, I'm searching for the words. I'm searching for the opportunities. I love you. I don't want to scare you with this, but I want to know I all of these amazing riches that I've got, and I see in your life bits of pain, bits of frustration, bits of hurt. I want you to know the love of God. And yet it's frustrating. And you're like, God, why don't you just save these people? You love them. And yet we see here some, some. Paul's not discouraged. I mean, he sees a lot more people meet Jesus after this. He goes on and on and on. But he knows God is faithful. God is faithful. He just preached to tons of people, maybe thousands. Some, some believed. And yet Paul knows what those some mean. All of heaven rejoices over everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. That's what the Bible says. And there's wonderful hope in that. And I, I don't think I've, I've spent effort on anything else more than, you know, this, maybe they'll believe. Let's just persevere, persevere with this. Let's get to know this neighbor. Let's, let's talk a little bit about Jesus. Let's see where it goes. And in some sense, if you literally just counted up the cost of how much we could throw into this compared to how often we see fruit, it can be quite disappointing. And yet we see the wonders of Jesus, how good he is. And when we're reminded by how wonderful Jesus is, it's all worth it. It's all worth it because God is good, because God is wonderful, because knowing what a difference it makes. And I see in my brother, every time I see him every now and again, I share the gospel with him as like an idiot Christian. I barely had a clue of, of how this all works. I was six months into it, shared Jesus with my brother and he just got saved. I'm like, why, why was it so easy then? And it's so difficult to share Jesus now. But Jesus is so good. I'm reminded every time I see Liam, I, my brother's life is totally different. He's filled with joy and hope. And it reminds me it's always worth it. It's always worth it. And I'm encouraged by that. And we should be encouraged by that. And Paul was encouraged by that. And we see Paul, Paul go on from city to city and, and like share the gospel, share the gospel. They try and stone him and kill him. No, 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 it's still good news. I need to keep on sharing it in prison. I need to keep on sharing it. And it's not just made for guys like Paul who, let's be honest, he was a little crazy, right? He, <laughs> he took risks I, I'm not sure I would be able to take. We share it because Jesus is good to us. And, and he's put something in our heart that we cannot stay silent about. We cannot just keep to ourselves. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. God bore spiritual life. He's the one who does it. And we've got to trust God for that. He is what he's doing. And he loves people. And so we faithfully say, you know what? We're going to befriend, love, share this gospel and do it faithfully because we love Jesus. And that's why we do it. So I'm just going to finish with this. We one of the things that came up, lots of things at the breakfast yesterday came up. And one of the things that came up was there, it was quite interesting. Some of the guys differed in the way that they would be lights in their workplaces. And um, one of the guys uh, particularly essentially said, 
I, I don't really like to talk about Jesus. I want to be a light in terms of uh, being really gracious, being really, really loving, being really caring, which is all biblical. That's all good stuff. God calls us to do that. But I don't really want to talk about Jesus. And this is a real temptation for us as Christians because it's, uh, it's really easy to be a nice person. It's really easy to be a nice bloke, right? Because that's kind of what our culture loves. Everyone likes you if you be a nice person. If you tell them, this is Jesus, you kind of should trust him. He's awesome. People kind of see you as weird. And there is a real temptation for us to step away from this, to not, to keep away from this, to be like, it's kind of scary. I, I will be Jesus implicitly. They will see Jesus through me. And hopefully they'll ask me, can I go on an alpha course? Uh, the, the reality is uh, this happens sometimes. And we should pray, God, would you speak to people miraculously? But normally it comes about because someone talks to you, you know. And there's people in this room who the, their journey with Jesus began because someone spoke to them. It wasn't crazy. It wasn't outrageous. It wasn't someone proclaiming the good news in an amphitheater, but it was a friendship. And someone plucking up that courage to say that awkward thing. So this is weird, but I love Jesus. Can I, can I tell you about him? And it's, t- it's tough. It's difficult. And, and I think it can be popular, and some Christians will say this from stages with microphones. Don't, don't share Jesus. Don't shout about him. Just, just be Jesus. But we don't see that in the Bible. We don't see that really in the Bible at all. We see people earnestly in every opportunity being like, how can I share Jesus here? And it doesn't have to be crazy. It doesn't have to be forced. You don't have to pretend, become someone else. Amy, bless her, it's so difficult for her sometimes because... I'm crazy. I love the intense moments and talking to crazy people and they're weird and I love it. It's great. And Amy is just not that person. And Amy sharing the gospel looks very different to me sharing the gospel because we're just different people and that's okay. But, but what we see is it begins in opportunities and friendships and this love of Jesus and love for our friends. And what it must outwork in is a conversation of some sorts. Is that all right? So I, I want to I end with this. The Bible says the harvest is ripe, but the laborers are few. And it's a call to us. Will we, will we make ourselves available to God? Uh, actually, in the worship time, I felt this scripture that would just be perfect to end it with. How will they believe in him of whom they have never heard? How will they believe in him of whom they've never heard? Friends, we have a wonderful opportunity. And it is not all on us. It's God's going to do it. God's the one who saves. God's the one who does good work. We just need to make ourselves available to him. To be willing to look sometimes like a little bit of a fool, which I find very easy. I know sometimes it can be a a little bit hard to look a fool for Christ. And that's okay. Because God does wonderful things through fools for Christ.